there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature and descriptions of this mystery, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and mutilation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. August 31st, 1888, was a dismal rainy night in the Whitechapel district of London. Two cartmen driving by found their narrow passage blocked by a woman laid out on the dirty cobblestones. She was soaked from the rain, her skirt pulled up around her waist. The men pulled down the woman's skirt to preserve her modesty and called over a constable, unsure if the woman was dead or drunk in the dark. Once the constable's lantern illuminated the body, there was no doubt. This was brutality like Whitechapel had never seen. The woman's neck had been sliced open, leaving two grisly gashes. Despite massive blood loss and the chilling rain, her legs were still warm, meaning her murder must have happened recently. No one had ever heard the term serial killer in Whitechapel, but the very worst crimes were referred to as ripping. Over the course of that dreadful autumn in 1888, four more women would fall victim to a very specific type of ripping. These rippings have gripped our imaginations ever since, spawning movies, television shows, websites, books, and even tours, all centering on the most famous killer never caught, Jack the Ripper. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Jack the Ripper. This week, we'll retrace the steps of the mysterious serial killer during the autumn of 1888. We'll examine his victims and how their murders are connected. It will be a tantalizing tale. The Ripper left very few clues behind. 
At 1 a.m. on August 31, 1888, Mary Ann Polly Nichols was kicked out of the kitchen of the Wilmot's lodging house where she rented a room. Like many of the residents of Whitechapel, Polly paid rent one night at a time at a common lodging house, or Das House. Das was slang for sleeping wherever you could, right alongside several strangers doing the same thing. Das houses were the norm in Whitechapel because the vast majority of the 76,000 residents living within that single square mile were desperately poor. They woke in the morning with no money in their pocket and had to earn however they could. In Tales of Mean Streets, Arthur Morrison describes the area as, quote, a shocking place, an evil plexus of slums that hide human creeping things, where filthy men and women live on penearths of gin, where collars and clean shirts are decencies unknown, where every citizen wears a black eye and none ever combs his hair. The East End of London, which included the Whitechapel area, had the highest death rate, highest crime rate, and lowest life expectancy of the entire United Kingdom. One in four children born in the East End died before the age of five. It was a miserable, hopeless place. Perhaps because living conditions were so desperate, alcoholism was rampant in Whitechapel. Polly was no exception and spent her last evening on earth the same way she spent most nights, drunk. On the night of the 31st, Polly had spent all her money on booze and had nothing left for a bed. Ironically, the price of Polly's Doss house was exactly the same as a generous serving of gin. But as her lodging house deputy ejected her into the night, Polly was characteristically optimistic, declaring, quote, Never mind. I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. End quote. Polly was confident she could make enough money for a bed that night because her business was conducted best in the darkness. Polly was a sex worker, selling her body for fourpence. Although Polly's years of hard living left her with five missing teeth and gray hair, she still managed to make a meager wage on the street and could even occasionally afford the finer things. She was very proud of her straw bonnet lined with black velvet. She would have been so disappointed to know it was stained with her blood just a few hours later. Her lodging house neighbors reported that they hadn't seen the hat before. It was new. Polly had been depending on DOS houses and sex work for survival since her marriage broke up about eight years prior in 1880. Records show that Polly's marriage fell apart due to her alcoholism. Her husband got tired of taking Polly back when she'd stumble home in the morning after a night of binge drinking. At the time of her death, Polly's husband and children had not seen her in three years, even though they lived nearby in Whitechapel. Polly's regular Doss House roommate was the last person to see her alive at about 2.30 a.m., leaning against a building too drunk to stand. A warehouse at the nearby harbor had caught fire, and the darkness of Whitechapel was stained with a foreboding red hue. Concerned about Polly's intoxication, the roommate suggested they return to the lodging house together, but Polly refused because she wanted to find one more John for the night. But something else found her instead. It wasn't until Polly's body was examined in a mortuary later that day that the true horror of her murder came to light. 
When the cartman had pulled down her skirt, they had inadvertently concealed a savage gash running all the way down her chest. After a thorough examination, inspectors reached several conclusions about the murder. All the wounds were the result of a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence. Both cuts across her throat were made from left to right. One cut was so deep it had nearly decapitated her. But it wasn't the devastating slashes to the throat that kept Polly from crying out. Those cuts weren't even what killed her, because Polly's blood had pooled beneath her rather than splattering. Inspectors guessed that Polly was strangled to death before the killer went to work with the knife. With no witnesses, police were stymied, but they would soon have another chance to examine the killer's methods. In the early morning of September 8, 1888, mere hours before Polly's funeral, the Ripper claimed another victim. Annie Chapman's wavy, dark brown hair had earned her the nickname Dark Annie. She was a mother of three, and like Polly, she was separated from her husband. She made what she could selling flowers, crocheting, and also like Polly, selling her body. Much of Dark Annie's difficult life mirrored Polly's. Before her marriage broke up, Annie was arrested multiple times for drunk and disorderly conduct. A police report cites Annie's alcoholism as the reason her marriage failed. Also like Polly, dark Annie's alcoholism kept her out on the streets rather than in her bed on the night of her murder. Annie's landlord at the time, Timothy Donovan, reported that Annie asked him to hold her bed for her. But Donovan could tell she'd been drinking, testifying at the inquest that Annie had had enough of that, I am certain. In response to Annie's request that he hold her bed, he retorted that she had chosen to spend her money on beer rather than her rent. A witness on her way to the market spotted dark Annie around 5 a.m. on the 8th, walking with a tall man whose hat obscured his face. The man was wearing a deerstalker cap, a usually plaid hat with visors in the front and back, and ear flaps that can be tied up or under the chin. The witness claims she heard the man ask Annie, Will you? And Annie replied, Yes. The witness assumed that she had overheard a normal negotiation between a sex worker and a client, but in fact, she had seen Jack the Ripper with his latest victim. John Davis, a resident of 29 Hanbury Street, arose around 6 a.m. in the room he shared with his wife and three children. He had a cup of tea and was headed for the outhouse in the backyard when he discovered Dark Annie on her back in the mud. Her dress was pulled up above her waist, and her knees were bent and splayed out to the sides like a woman in labor. Her slashed throat had spilled blood in a wide crimson halo around her head, and her intestines had been pulled out through a gash in her stomach, and left displayed across her chest. According to Davis's testimony, the doors to the passage between the street and the yard where Annie's body was found were not able to be locked. Davis states, quote, anyone who knows where the latch of the front door is could open it and go along the passage to the backyard, end quote. Sex workers and their clients often trespassed into the yard at 29 Hanbury Street to conduct their nightly business. But although Annie had ostensibly been murdered just beneath the windows of the jam-packed lodging house, 
None of the tenants had heard a struggle. As police swarmed the crime scene and struggled to keep the public from ogling the body, the resourceful residents of 29 Hanbury Street saw an opportunity. Residents with views of the yard charged sixpence for a peek out their windows, where onlookers could see Annie's body and the investigating police. The Ripper was becoming a sensation. The Lancet, a popular newspaper of the time, made the following report based on a post-mortem analysis from the coroner, Dr. George Baxter Phillips. Quote, There could be little doubt that he first strangled or suffocated his victim, for not only were no cries heard, but the face, lips, and hands were livid as in asphyxia and not blanched as they would be from loss of blood. End quote. Annie was strangled before the killer made the jagged cut across her throat from left to right. The comparison to Polly's murder was unavoidable on these details alone, but the full disembowelment was an alarming escalation. Police suspected that the next murder, if it occurred, would be even worse. They wouldn't have to wait long to have their fears realized. Next, we'll delve further into the growing terror that racked Whitechapel during the autumn of 1888. Now, back to the story. On September 10, 1888, two days after her murder, dark Annie Chapman was examined by a medical inspector. The most gruesome detail of her death was yet to come. As they inspected the body, police realized that the guts left strewn across dark Annie's chest had not been arranged with aesthetics in mind. Their placement served a practical purpose. Annie's innards had been removed simply to achieve easier access to what Jack was really after, her uterus. Dr. George Bagster Phillips examined Annie's body in the mortuary and noted that the initial incision of the abdomen and the removal of her digestive organs had been executed in a method that deliberately left her womb intact. But after making these careful, precise cuts to reach the reproductive organs, the Ripper put aside his knife and violently wrenched Annie's uterus out of her body. This ripping action was indicated by the state of what was left of the appendages of the uterus and other nearby organs. The tissue was in tattered shreds rather than cleanly cut. The uterus itself and everything attached to it was missing. After murdering Annie, Jack the Ripper walked away from her lifeless body with her uterus, part of her abdomen, including the navel, and pieces of her bladder and genitals. Dr. Phillips, himself an experienced medical professional, estimated that he would not be able to perform all the incisions and removals Jack the Ripper somehow accomplished within the half-hour period between Annie's sighting on the street and when Davis encountered her body. The Lancet reported Dr. Phillips stating, quote, Obviously, the work was that of an expert, of one at least, who had such knowledge of anatomical or pathological examinations as to be enabled to secure the pelvic organs with one sweep of the knife, end quote. The most puzzling detail of Annie's crime scene was the arrangement of her belongings, which seemed purposeful, not random. During the inquest, Inspector Joseph Chandler testified, quote, I examined the yard and found a piece of coarse muslin, a small tooth comb, and a pocket hair comb in a case. They were lying near the feet of the woman. A portion of an envelope was found near her head, which contained two pills, end quote. 
Annie had likely gotten the pills at the casual ward, where the destitute of Whitechapel went when they were unwell. The post-mortem exam showed that she was in the final stages of tuberculosis. Desperate for any sort of lead, inspectors became preoccupied with the partial address on the envelope containing the pills. It was marked with the emblem of the Royal Sussex Regiment, but when police followed up, the trail turned cold. The letters M, S, and the numeral 2 were all visible on the envelope, and many resources were focused on puzzling out which location they belonged to. But all this was moot when William Stevens, a fellow renter in Dark Annie's lodging house, testified at the inquest on September 13th. Stevens had shared a pint of beer with Annie on the night of her murder and witnessed her carrying her pills in a box that was falling apart. Annie found a random envelope in the house, tore off a corner and secured two pills inside it. The envelope was not Annie's correspondence and had no bearing on her murder. Two rings had been stolen off Annie's fingers, but it's unclear if the killer took them or if the rings were removed before the police arrived on the scene. Despite what initially seemed like a crime scene rife with possible clues, police were again completely mystified. But the public was not satisfied with the slow pace of justice. Lloyd's Weekly newspaper reported that fights broke out in the crowds surrounding the crime scene as accusations flew. Any man that asked too many questions or had too much information was suddenly under the scrutiny of the mob. In the days following the murder, unsettling messages were graffitied onto buildings and doors surrounding 29 Hanbury Street. Police disregarded the messages. Constable Walter Drew blamed them on, quote, mischievous-minded people who obtained some grim pleasure in adding to the fears of an already demented people, end quote. But the messages fed the fear of a public that was already on edge. It was impossible to go outside without being confronted with terrifying scrawlings. One read, this is the fourth. I will kill 16 more and then give myself up. Things settled down in Whitechapel for a few weeks. Some thought that maybe the killer had gotten his fill from the two murders. But then, on September 30th, 1888, came the double event. The International Working Men's Educational Club was a socialist club favored by modest tradesmen like tailors and cobblers. The clubhouse was packed on that soggy and foggy Saturday night. Around 1 a.m., The steward of the club, Louis Deemschutz, was returning from his job as a jewelry salesman. Deemschutz directed his pony into the narrow alley leading to the yard behind the club. The passage was dark and confining. His cart could barely pass between the two-story brick walls on either side. As the pony emerged from the passage into the yard, it recoiled, almost knocking its head against the brick wall in panic. When Deemschutz investigated whatever it was that was spooking his pony, all he could make out in the dark yard was some kind of indistinct mass on the ground. Deemschutz got off his cart and struck a match, illuminating a bloody gash and a tangle of skirts and hair for just a moment until the wind blew the match out. The yard was so pitch black that the ripper easily could have been lurking just a few feet away, concealed in the dark and cursing Deemschutz for interrupting him at the crucial moment. Deemschutz wasn't waiting around to find out. He dashed back into the club. 
Diemschutz raised the alarm among the club members and led them outside to where he had found a body. This time, he brought a candle with him to get a better look at her. Diemschutz later told reporters, I could see that her throat was fearfully cut. There was a great gash in it, over two inches wide. Less than a mile away, Patrol Constable Watkins walked his beat through Mitre Square. In the 40 minutes following the discovery of the first corpse, all seemed calm. Close to 2 a.m., Constable Watkins' lamp illuminated something both unthinkable and disturbingly familiar. The body of a woman. Watkins described her to the press as ripped up like a pig in the market. Her throat was sliced open, and she had been disemboweled. Her inner organs had been stretched from inside her, and her face was hewn beyond recognition. As with every other Ripper victim, the victim's body was still warm, nowhere near rigor mortis when she was found. Yet once again, Jack was able to sneak right by several police officers, and they had missed catching him in the act by just a few minutes. Although Constable Watkins must have been close by when the murder occurred, he hadn't heard any screams. Mitre Square lay just inside the border of the city proper. Jack the Ripper had brought his horrors from the slums of Whitechapel to London. An anonymous city official writing for the Daily Telegraph described, quote, the widespread horror and alarm felt at the succession of terrible tragedies which have been so ruthlessly perpetrated in Whitechapel and the manner in which their author had succeeded in baffling detection, end quote. The Ripper had the entire city of London in a frenzy, no doubt. But news of his killing spree was starting to fascinate other countries as well. In the New York Times article on the double event, the writer speculated, quote, he seems bent on beating all previous records in his unheard of crimes, end quote. The double event was also reported in Canada and all over Europe. The Ripper's first victim of the night, Elizabeth Stride, was nicknamed Long Liz because of her remarkable height, all of five feet five inches. At that time, the average height of a woman was about five feet tall. She was married to John Thomas Stride in 1869, but the two had separated in 1877. It's unclear why Liz and her husband split, but when applying for assistance at a church in 1878, Liz claimed she had been aboard a steamship saloon, the Princess Alice, when it famously crashed into another ship, the Bywell Castle, drowning 700 people. She told the church she had been injured and that her husband and children had all tragically died in the disaster. This turned out to be a spectacular fabrication, but the church did not record Liz requesting assistance for any children. By this time, she had already detached herself from her family, and her lifestyle will probably sound familiar. A never-ending cycle of prostitution excessive drinking, and a reliance on DOS houses for a place to lay her head. On the last night of Liz's life, two laborers recalled seeing her tucked under the eaves of the Bricklayer's Arms pub, getting cozy with a client. The laborers called out jokingly, Watch out, he's coming to get you. It was still relatively early in the night, so it's unlikely that the man with Liz was the same man who would end up killing her. But the laborers' warnings were, of course, chillingly prescient. 
During that dreadful autumn, sex workers probably heard such call-outs daily. Long Liz was last seen alive by a constable, William Smith. Smith testified that he was walking his beat on Berners Street when he noticed a woman with a rose pinned to her coat. And that same rose was identified when the police went through Liz's belongings. She was in the company of a tall man carrying something wrapped in newspaper. Her companion wore a deerstalker hat. Smith spotted Liz and her client just a few houses down from where her body would be found less than a half an hour later. Liz's injuries were not an exact match to the Ripper's other victims. Her abdomen was left intact and there were no signs of strangulation. However, the cut across the throat appeared to be made with the same strong knife and from left to right like the first two victims. Her body was still warm when it was discovered and blood was still flowing from her body down toward the kitchen floor of the club. The killer could have been forced to stop before he was finished. Dr. William Blackwell put forth this theory at the inquest. Quote, The deceased had round her neck a check silk scarf, the bow of which was turned to the left and pulled very tight. In the neck, there was a long incision, which exactly corresponded with the lower border of the scarf. The border was slightly frayed, as if by a sharp knife. I formed the opinion that the murderer probably caught hold of the silk scarf, which was tight and knotted, and pulled the deceased backwards, cutting her throat in that way." End quote. Another notable difference between Liz and the first two victims is that she was sober at the time of her death. No alcohol or other intoxicants were found in her system. There was no blood spatter at the proper height to indicate that Liz had been cut while she was standing up. Even more perplexing, she showed no signs of asphyxiation. However, a modern examination of Liz's crime scene offers up an alternative theory. Reflex cardiac arrest, or RCA. RCA occurs when sudden, intense pressure on the critical arteries in the neck stop blood flow to the brain. Because RCA can occur in a matter of seconds, it leaves no trace except a slightly pale face. A laborer named Best, who claimed he saw Liz in a pub a few hours before her murder, identified her remains, observing, quote, The face looks the same, but a little paler, end quote. Catherine Eddowes, the Ripper's second victim of the September 30th double event and fourth victim in total, was a better fit with the first two targets. At 8.30 p.m. on the night she was murdered, Catherine, whose friends called her Kate, was already so drunk she had fallen to the ground in the middle of Aldgate High Street, and, try as she might, she couldn't get up. A crowd gathered to laugh at her misfortune. A constable later testified, I picked her up and sat her against the shutters, but she fell down sideways. She smelt very strongly of drink. Because Kate was too drunk to look after herself, she was arrested and taken to a nearby police station where she slept off the alcohol. A few hours later, she was awake and singing. She contritely told the officer on duty that she'd be in real trouble when she got home. But upon her release, she headed away from her lodging house and back toward the pub where she'd been arrested. At the same time, less than a mile away, the Ripper was tearing into Elizabeth Stride's body. Like the other victims, Kate lived hand to mouth. She was an alcoholic, 
nearly homeless and separated from the father of her children. However, she did have her longtime partner's initials tattooed on her arm. This would later help investigators identify her body. Unlike the Ripper's other victims, Kate was not a known sex worker. Her lodging house deputy reported that she was usually in her bed at a reasonable hour. But Kate struggled to make ends meet doing other odd jobs and probably resorted to sex work when the going got especially rough. Kate and her partner, John Kelly, had recently returned from a trip to the country to pick hops, the key ingredient in beer. Their trip wasn't successful, however. The morning of Kate's murder, Kelly was forced to pawn his boots to pay for their breakfast. When they parted ways to make the day's wage, Kelly was apprehensive about the Ripper. Kate reassured him, Don't you fear for me. I'll take care of myself, and I shan't fall into his hands. Although the pair planned to meet at 4 o'clock, Kelly didn't see her alive again. We'll discuss the Ripper's final victims and his unexpected disappearance from the public eye right after this. Now, back to the story. It was October 1st, 1888, the day after the double event. Kate Eddowes' body in Mitre Square was the most public and grisly crime scene the Ripper had left behind yet. An anonymous city official present at Kate's crime scene wrote in the Daily Telegraph that her body was shockingly mutilated and speculated that the killer, quote, is a man armed with a keen and fearful weapon, which he wields with a strong arm, and possessed by a maniacal fury against the lower class of streetwalkers, end quote. Only such a madman would be likely to slash and cut with the rapidity and wildness which must have been employed in hacking and mutilating the poor creature found in the corner of Mitre Square. A post-mortem examination of Kate's body revealed that the Ripper had taken his despicable craft to new heights with his latest victim. He cut Kate down the center of her sternum, pulled the knife to the left around the navel, and then back to the right toward her hip bone. He was then able to rip open the wound, peeling back most of the skin of her torso and giving him easy access to her abdomen. He laid her intestines over her shoulder, just as he had with Dark Annie. But this time, he also took the time to cut out two feet of intestine and place it thoughtfully beside her, between her left arm and her body. Also like Annie, Kate's uterus was missing but so was her left kidney. The Ripper had gotten greedier with his souvenirs, it seems. None of Jack's other victims had their faces mutilated, but Kate's entire nose had been cut off. There were eight cuts seemingly random all over her face. Part of her right earlobe was also missing. And somehow he accomplished all of this in less than 15 minutes. At the inquest, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown reiterated that the killer, quote, must have had a good deal of knowledge as to the position of the abdominal organs and the way to remove them, end quote. Dr. Brown noted that the harvest of the kidney was particularly remarkable because the tiny organ is easily overlooked and tucked behind a delicate membrane, which had been meticulously cut away. Also discussed at the inquest was one of the first solid clues left behind by the Ripper, a square piece of cloth found in a doorway near Mitre Square. The cloth had a fresh, wet, bloody swipe on it, like it had been used to clean a knife. 
The cloth was returned to Kate's body, where it was found to correspond to the apron Kate was wearing. In fact, a constable fitted that portion which was spotted with blood to the remaining portion of the apron, which was still attached by the strings to the body. There was no doubt the piece of cloth had been torn from the victim's apron. The constable who found the piece of apron testified at the inquest that he passed through the same area 20 minutes prior and that the apron piece had not been there. This led the police to suspect that the Ripper had loitered near the crime scene after the murder and left the cloth behind as a taunt. Above the cloth was a graffiti message scrawled in chalk on the wall, quote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, end quote. Although police searched the surrounding area immediately, no obvious suspects or other traces of blood could be found. Police ordered photographs of the graffiti, but none were ever taken. In fact, the head of police ordered the graffiti washed away. The true meaning of this mysterious message and the intentions of police are much debated after the fact, but day of... The double event was no different than any other Ripper murder as far as the police were concerned. Despite their best efforts, they were no closer to apprehending a suspect. After the horror of the double event, where Jack took two lives in one night, the Ripper's work was not done. He struck again November 9th. Mary Kelly was the youngest of the Ripper's victims, only 25, and considered attractive and friendly. Her Irish blood was evident in her looks. Long red hair, light fair skin, and blue eyes. She married at only 16, but lost her husband a few years later in an accident. Kelly was forced into sex work to support herself and was known to overindulge in alcohol on occasion. For several months before her death, she lived with her partner, John Barnett. But conflict arose over Kelly's profession and her decision to allow a fellow homeless sex worker to move in with them. After a fight that resulted in a broken window, Barnett moved out. Two weeks later, Kelly was dead. Kelly spent the night of her murder getting drunk at a pub on Commercial Street. Her neighbor, a fellow sex worker named Mary Cox, saw Kelly heading up to her room with a man carrying a pail full of beer. They were both intoxicated. Kelly was so drunk that she could barely respond when Cox wished her a good night. As Cox headed to the street to search for her own client, she could hear Kelly singing A Violet from Mother's Grave. This Kelly was next spotted on Commercial Street by another friend named George Hutchinson. Hutchinson lived in another lodging house nearby and had given Kelly money in the past, although it's unclear if he was ever a client. He saw Kelly laughing with a client who carried a small parcel. When the pair walked past, the client glared at Hutchinson and pulled his hat down over his face. Unsettled, Hutchinson decided to follow them. Kelly and her client lingered in the courtyard of her lodging house, but Kelly reassured the man. All right, my dear, come along. You'll be comfortable. Then they kissed. Kelly lamented that she had lost her handkerchief and the client supplied his. Soon, Kelly led the man inside, but Hutchinson never saw a light go on in her room or heard any noise. After 45 minutes passed, Hutchinson departed. 
The following morning, Friday, November 9th, an associate of Mary Kelly's landlord named Thomas Bowyer came to her room to collect the rent. She was three months overdue. He knocked on her door several times, but there was no answer. Thinking Kelly might still be drunk, or perhaps was simply hoping to evade her landlord, Bowyer exited the building and looked into her room through the window, the one that had been broken during her fight with John Barnett. Bowyer gasped at a gruesome sight. Two long strips of skin clotted in the morning light on Kelly's table, as if laid out for a meal. There was blood on the floor and the bed. Bowyer ran to the local police station, arriving out of breath and rattled. He was tongue-tied for several seconds before, according to his witness statement, he was finally able to spit it out. Quote, another one. Jack the Ripper. Awful. End quote. Dr. Thomas Bond, one of the most accomplished and respected police doctors in London, examined the crime scene and Kelly's body. His notes on the scene are some of the most exacting and thorough records available on any of the Ripper's victims. Because Kelly's door was locked, the door had to be broken down before the police could enter. Inside, they found an absolute nightmare of a scene carefully staged by the killer. Jack the Ripper had performed his most unspeakable execution to date. According to Bond's report, Kelly was left naked on her back, legs spread wide on the bed. Her right hand had been clenched into a fist and placed near her head in an almost celebratory position. Her left arm had been laid across her stomach, or rather, where her stomach should have been. Instead, her forearm was like a bridge over her emptied abdominal cavity. She had been nearly completely eviscerated, and her organs had been staged around her corpse. The blood in the room was overwhelming. Bond surmised that the splashes were the result of slashes to the neck. When Bond examined Kelly's body more closely during a post-mortem exam, he found that her heart was missing. The Ripper had found a new trophy. In the fireplace, ashes from a recent fire were mixed with scraps of the clothes Kelly had been wearing when she was murdered. During the inquest, police speculated that the Ripper had lit the fire to illuminate Kelly's body as he butchered it. Bond agreed that Kelly's murder was, without a doubt, performed by the same killer who murdered Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Kate Eddowes, citing the neck-slashing technique. Bond even posited that all the murders, except Elizabeth Stride's, had been performed with the same sharp six-inch blade. But Bond disputed the claim that the Ripper had any special knowledge of human anatomy. Quote, in my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer or any person accustomed to cut up dead animals, end quote. Bond was forced to admit that the Ripper obviously possessed great coolness and daring to commit murder in a crowded lodging house, then spend hours creating an extravagant display for law enforcement to find. Kelly's brutal murder only fanned desperation to catch the Ripper. But when American journalist R. Harding Davis asked Scotland Yard Chief Inspector Henry Moore about clues left behind at the crime scenes, Moore admitted that his force had very little to work with. Quote, he never leaves so much as a rag behind him. There is no more of a clue to that chap's identity than there is to the identity of some murderer who will kill someone a hundred years from now, end quote. 
Although law enforcement and the community of Whitechapel remained on high alert for months after Kelly's death, she was Jack the Ripper's final known victim. There's no clear explanation for why his spree ended with Kelly, but experts speculate that he could have been jailed for a different crime, put into an asylum due to insanity, or died suddenly the way most people in Whitechapel did, by disease or by accident. To this day, the identity of Jack the Ripper remains a source of obsession and fascination with a number of theories as to who he really was. Next week, we'll dive deep into all the theories about his identity from 1888 all the way to the present. Ripperologists, as experts on Jack the Ripper refer to themselves, have presented all kinds of theories on Jack's identity, from drunken, enraged sailors to deranged barbers to royalty. Jack could have been a few people working in tandem, or he could have been enmeshed in a secret society, or he could have been a she. We'll explore what could have motivated Jack to violence and probe all the methods he could have used to execute his specific variety of ripping. We'll also unpack the social tension in Whitechapel at the time of the murders, how that affected the police investigation, and why many of the initial suspects and evidence have since been discredited. DNA testing was not available to the Scotland Yard in 1888, but... All the crime-fighting technology of the modern era has given new significance to the few clues Jack did leave behind. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two of Jack the Ripper. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 